from Silicon Valley, the heart of startup land. It's Getting to Alpha, the show about creating innovative, compelling experiences that people love. And now, here's your host, game designer, entrepreneur, and startup coach, Amy Jo Kim. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Today, we're talking with Steve Portugal, a world-class expert in customer research. Steve is the author of Interviewing Users, a practical handbook chock full of actionable advice. We use this book in our Getting to Alpha design programs, where Steve is one of our most popular VIP coaches, offering sage advice about how to get the most from your customer interviews. We're not just trying to collect usage information, we're trying to collect meaning information. And it's there, it's there for the picking up. If you ask about what people do, they will also talk to you about what it means. And what it means reveals the biggest barriers or the opportunities. Listen in as Steve pulls back the curtain on his professional journey and shares powerful insights about who to talk with and what to listen for when you're interviewing users. Steve, for those who aren't familiar with your work, why don't you start by giving us a helicopter tour of your background? What experiences led you to your current role and expertise? Yeah, well, I was I was born many no, we won't go back to, to that. But you know, you ask any question about sort of how something came to be, it, it it does trace back to different things. For me, it came from getting out of graduate school with a degree in human computer interaction in the days before the web where there was no the word design was not applied to software very often. Certainly, we didn't have phrases like user experience. And so with a, a, you know, a graduate degree, I actually I didn't have a portfolio. And so I ended up working in it for a consultancy in Silicon Valley that was traditional industrial design. That's kind of where the design work was happening in the 90s. And from there, you know, trying to make it in the world of human-computer interaction, which, again, there was no mature process or mature practice there. And that organization I was in was prototyping, I guess I'll call it prototyping, using ethnography, doing a service called innovation. It was kind of sort of a transgressive offering at that time. Now it's just sort of part and parcel of what we all think that we all do. But while they were figuring out what did it mean to do work where you were producing insights that maybe informed design or informed strategy, I kind of got on board with that and apprenticed for a period of time. And then, you know, as you apprentice, you go from journeyman to master if you do it long enough and do it well enough. And so I kind of learned in the 90s, which just makes me sound old, but that's when it was. uh, I kind of learned about user research back then, started my own practice in 2001. Obviously, it's not something you ever stop learning about. I've been learning about the work and then you know, doing my own consulting with clients, you know, in the years with my own practice as well and teaching and writing and sort of, you know, learning by not only doing, but also putting it back out there in in the world, I guess is sort of the, now I've I've rambled off the point of your question, so I'll stop there. Well, that's okay. So you launched your business during the tech downturn, the tech crash. One of them. Yes. 2001. Yes. So how did that go? Who did you get as your first clients? It was a challenging and interesting period of time. And, you know, you can look back on yourself and, and realize, like, I had no idea what I was doing. I had done a lot of the work. I knew how to write a proposal. I knew how to 
execute these kinds of studies. And at least to a certain level, I knew that. And I'd been in a consulting practice. I didn't know how to build my own practice. And so I really started networking with people and just sort of talking about what I was doing and what I thought I wanted to do and seeing what they were doing. And I don't know, I felt like people wanted to give me a break. If you remember that time, it was just, it was an awful time economically. It was an awful time culturally. You know, 9-11 happened a little while after that. As challenging as it was uh, economically, professionally, personally, I think there was something positive going on. And I want to say my first project was like totally someone giving me a break. Like it was someone that had been, you know, just a good networking friend, if that's a, a category of person. I think they hired me for basically a, like a day of work over three weeks to help them with one of their clients do a survey. It was really just more about, can we throw Steve a bone and get him kind of working on something? And, and it was a chance to sort of collaborate with someone independently. And I, I remember when I started my business that, you know, okay, I'd had zero clients and that big leap to go from zero client to one client was just just felt tremendous. And then I knew that once I did that, going from one client to two clients, you know, and client number two was um, people that wanted me, I can't even remember how I got hooked up with them, but I, I think I led some discussions in a, you know, like a market research facility about like printer queue management for professional print jobs or something. This is obviously a long time ago, but my third project was like a 14th month basically a longitudinal study with Hewlett Packard where we went to Japan and some other places to look at the development, uh, you know, kind of guide the development of this, what was, what was hoping to be an innovative printer and I think never got made, but you know, it was an amazing arc of like a little drip here, a little drop here. And then boom, it was like one of the biggest projects that ever worked on. And uh, I haven't and don't continue to sort of struggle or try to figure things out about having a consulting practice, but that, you know, one, two, three thing was, now that, now that you asked me about it, I realized it was quite a wonderful trajectory to have there. And you've been doing it ever since. Yes. You've got a great catchphrase that I've now used, and I always attribute to you. Check your worldview at the door. Can you tell us a little about that, following up on um, what you wrote in your book, and how you came to understand that, and why that's so important as an interviewer? Uh, can I... Add, add some more geekery to this uh, as, as a prelude to that question. Oh, please. Because uh, you've asked me like a few different questions in this conversation about where did things come from? Uh, I don't think anyone's ever asked me where that phrase came from. What, it's being a child of the 70s and 80s that, uh, you know, Americans will remember, you know, we are the world and Canadians, which is what I am, will uh, remember the Canadian uh, response song, which was called Tears Are Not Enough. And anyway, just like with, uh, <laughs> you know, We Are the World, there was uh, a making of video that just showed all these pop stars kind of coming into the studio. And David Foster was the producer and he put a sign on the door. I hope I'm remembering this correctly, but he put a sign on the door that said, um, check your ego at the door. You know, because you have all these, a huge amount of, you know, big personalities coming in to try to collaborate. And, you know, the idea was just, you got to, you got to set that all aside and kind of come in and be with this mess to make it happen. And, you know, I'm sure that that's, that that's just where I first heard the phrase. The phrase obviously exists in, in many versions, check your whatever at the door, but that's where it lodged in my brain. And sort of, that's what I was channeling when I, when I said, check your worldview at the door. And I, I think it really is the same thing. You know, you go into an environment 
It's not your environment. You're a certain person outside. If you're going to sit with someone and watch how they make travel reservations uh, or whatever activity they're doing, you come into that environment and you're thinking about yourself and why you're doing it and what you know, and you're just you're just overloaded with with identity uh, or or ego, as as they called it in the in the music situation. That's just how we kind of carry ourselves around at the world, uh, you know, in the world of being alive and being human. But that just so much gets in the way and you can't hear, you can't sort of be ready to pick up on what's going on if you've got your sort of metaphorical baggage. So it's kind of about setting that down and, and, and kind of going, going into it. So you asked me, I'm not sure if I answered all the parts of your question because I got into my, my uh, nostalgia part of it, but was there another part? Everybody loves a good story. I love your stories. Yes. The other part of it is really digging into the point of view that's behind that, which I think you really embody. And as you, you know, coach and train other people, how do you help young researchers and especially product people who've created something and are testing it? And of course they love what they've created. How do you help them embody, check your worldview at the door in order to be the most effective researcher? If I look at my own trajectory and how I frame that, I think I might have started off from a place of kind of eye rolling or scolding. Not that I would ever be a jerk about it, but sort of thinking like, oh, those people, they're so in love with their own solution. They need to just shut up. And and realizing the more I sort of explore these topics, that the way to get better at them is to have empathy. And you know, empathy is a word that we use when we talk about this work, have empathy for the user. But I'm really talking about having empathy for yourself. Well, of course, I'm caught up, you know, in my passion and my hopes and my hypotheses about this product. Of course I am. Otherwise, I wouldn't be uh, innovating. I wouldn't be doing a startup. I wouldn't be committing to this team. I wouldn't be working at this job, whatever it is. People do things because they love it and they're committed to it. One of the tactics for that empathy is, is talking about check your worldview. It doesn't mean discard your worldview. It doesn't mean forget everything that you know, what you think is wrong. It just says, you know, create a space, compartmentalize. Uh, when you go into this environment, take the thing that you have and just put it on a shelf, leave it at the coat check, and then go in. And And so you still have that. You know that your worldview is waiting for you, uh, and you can go back to that. But just, you know, take some time and and be deliberate about what, what mindset you cultivate when you go into that environment. And so there's some, you know, some v- tactical things to do to be mindful or, you know, is things like being aware of what the transitions are. So, you know, I sort of take the analogy of like, I don't know why I pick sports analogies because I'm the worst person to ever use them, but you know, the, the football players uh, in the huddle, they kind of, they get together, they talk about something, they put their hands in the middle and they say break and everyone kind of raises their hands up at the same time and they, they, they pull back. Like that's a transition ritual. That's okay. We're off the game. We're sort of planning and then we're transitioning to go back into the game. So those transition rituals, I sort of tell people when they are going to go into an interview, there's a point at which you're getting ready, you're going over there. It doesn't matter sort of what medium you're using, if it's in person or not. You're going from an activity that's not the interview to an activity that is the interview. And so just to kind of take a moment and say, okay, for the next 30 minutes, the next 120 minutes, let's just try to learn about how Joanne makes travel reservations. Let's just make it about that. And 
the implicit part of that statement is that we're not thinking about what meetings we have, what what aspirations we have, what sales targets we have to make, what our burn rate for our coders is. We're really thinking about just looking at this person and their behavior. I think that's just a way to give yourself a break and just make it easier, not easy, but easier to really think about that experience with that person and learning about them, you know, as a complete thing. And and afterwards you can leave and you can go back and pick up your worldview and make sense of this and start to triangulate and, and organize and learn. But for those periods of that time where you're with someone to learn about them, just taking that weight of, of the world off your shoulders and just saying like, okay, I, I'm just going to learn about them. And so the transition ritual is to consciously articulate that. Like I, I had a client that brought a yoga bell into the field. And when she would take people out, she would, they would be getting out of the car to go to someone's home. I think she had it in the trunk. She'd gather around the trunk and they would kind of ring the bell, creating this moment where, you know, okay, we were trying to get here. We were, you know, making phone calls in the car. Now we've kind of got here and we're going and we're just going to sort of center around this little moment of the bell. And then we're kind of focused and we can kind of go in and do the interview. And it may sound silly. I know I, I love it as a concept. I don't know if I could ring a bell, but I love the, the, the idea behind it. But you know, whatever sort of transition ritual you create for yourself, it's just about marking the difference between A and B. So following up on that, what are some of the most common mistakes that you see, particularly first-time entrepreneurs or first-time product builders make when they set out to do research? You know, what are the things that most people hit that you've seen over and over again? Let's talk about language as the first one. You know, and this this is about the fact that real people don't talk the way that startup people, innovators, business people talk. It's, and of course, business people are real people, but when they put on their business hats, they talk in a horrible way. Real people's language is much mushier and terms are not used in the, in the same way. And if you have a conversation with someone, I think the tactic here is to reflect back the language that you've heard, um, to sort of keep your way of asking questions jargon-free. And when pe- when someone says... Well, I, I just plug in my iPhone and, and the data moves over. Don't ask a follow-up question that says, uh, so when you're synchronizing, blah, 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 blah. They didn't say it that way. They said, I plug in my phone and move the data over. So when you say synchronize, even though in your head you're sort of thinking like, well, that's, that's synchronizing. When you sort of lay that word on top of them, it changes the power dynamic very strongly. And people feel chastened and like they've been corrected. Uh, that you're smarter than them. It requires a little bit of sitting on your hands. A lot of this does, sitting on your hands, kind of just hold back on using the terminology that you use internally to describe uh, a process or you know something. It's, it's on some PowerPoint slide uh, somewhere in your planning process, this in this stage of interaction with something, but no one calls it that. So you know, having the discipline to hear how they're talking and kind of reflect back their language, even if their language is, quote, wrong. If someone describes a download and you realize it's actually an upload, you don't need to correct them or change the words. You understood what they're saying. You may want to ask a clarification question. I was in Starbucks the other day. It was just like a lovely little moment where uh, the person in front of me was ordering and they said, uh, I'll have the cupcake. And the cashier or the barista, are they still a barista if they're not actually making coffee? They did it in a really lovely way. They said, did you mean the muffin? 
Like there's no cupcake in, in the uh, display case there, but there is a muffin. And she did it in such a way, it was clear she was asking to clarify to make sure that she put the right order in. She wasn't interested in being right. And, and so once she established what the person wanted to order, then she said, a lot of people think it looks like, or really does look like. She acknowledged, she kind of normalized that person's reaction. So she needed to get the language precise because she had to make sure she was doing her job but she didn't need to be right. And she gave that person a lot of credit for their, quote, erroneous, mistaken use of, of, of terminology. That's a thing a lot of people could draw a lesson from. Just let them be right and kind of make them be right and clarify as much as you need. But that's, that's all you have to do. Let them be right and listen yeah. to their language. Yeah. Don't impose your own language. Yes. So you said it's like you're putting on your learning hat when you go in, if you ring a bell or not. So it sounds like, the message there is when you're putting on your learning hat, really learn from their language. Consider that your job. You want to know what language they use. Yes. And, and in order to continue learning, because it's not just a simple one question, but through all the time that you're there with them, you need to keep using their language to ensure that you keep learning. So that muffin interaction was really over kind of a minute, but if they were to continue talking you know, the Starbucks employee had really set up a nice dynamic with that customer. They had established rapport. They had built trust with them. So they were in a good position to keep going. If you kind of, you know, hit that person with your corrective language early on, you have to work a lot harder to get them to share as deeply and earnestly with you as you'd like. That's great. The second one we talked about, I called call and response. Yeah, that's the thing. It's a, it's a lovely, it's a lovely phrase. I think we have a lot of bad models of what interviews look like in the media, where it's kind of a question answer, question answer, and where question three may have nothing to do with question two, let alone the answer to question two. Maybe you've had this experience where someone has a clipboard or they phone you up and they just ask you a bunch of questions and there's no, they don't even say, uh-huh, or good. They just kind of go on to the next question because their objective is to fill in that slot that, you know, you know how you write a form that has text of the question and then some underlines for the answer. They're just trying to fill in that. They're not actually listening. They're not interested. And so the conversation never goes anywhere surprising because they've kind of super constrained what they want to do. Their surveys are good for certain kinds of inf information, but that's not what we're talking about doing here. You, you can ask a question and listen to the answer. You're going to get a lot of information there. The thing that you might choose to do is nothing. It's just to, it's just to, it's just to nod or go, mm-hmm, and let the person keep going. And when they do that, you may now have five or six other questions to ask, as well as the next one that you've written down. And so you have to choose judiciously kind of where to go. I have a story about that where I was coaching some people who were you know, doing some practice interviews. They had, they had customers coming into their office and were sitting and meeting with them. And I was working with this guy who was the interviewer who just was the sweetest personality, just so genuine, so authentic. He just was really lovely. Um, he was doing a great job. And anyway, he's talking to this guy about some financial processes that, that he's going through. And he's asking lots of follow-up questions and it's really, it's really great. He's listening, he's using his language. And I mean, the guy that's being interviewed says, so I get all the materials together and I hand them to the CPA and then I go home and have a panic attack. And my guy, the interviewer says, how do you organize those papers? 
Like he totally sidestepped the, the panic attack thing. You know, what was happening was that that it was sort of a trust fall exercise that the man being interviewed revealed something very vulnerable about himself. And that was a cue. That was a trailhead. That was a couple of things going on there. He was sort of saying like, you know, I'm going to reveal something about myself to see if it's okay to trust you. Like, is it okay to talk about the softer side of things here? And the guy ignored him. He didn't pick up on it. And he said later on that he was uncomfortable and he didn't know what to do. But that was, that was like a, you know, a flare being sent up. Uh, I mean, the question to ask is, oh, a panic attack. Well, tell me about that. So, you know, the person basically told him what his next question should be because they gave this very large emotional cue. He didn't say, I have a panic attack because A, B, C, D, and Q. He said, I have a panic attack. And so he held some information back. He's wanting to be asked. It's like, you know, a, a little kid or a dog that kind of like comes up to you and like wants you to chase them. You know, they're, they're telling you what they want you to do. I don't mean that to be a, a patronizing metaphor. It's just more, a, it was meant to be a sweet metaphor. It was a very sweet thing that this man did by making himself vulnerable. And my guy, for all his good intentions, just, he just didn't know what to do with it. And so I think, you know, listening for those emotional cues and choosing your questions that follow up based on, on what some of those cues are is a way to sort through the many, many, many questions. At any point in time, you probably have 10 possible questions just based on what's going on right then. And so, you know, trying to prioritize based on the person and kind of really listening to them and really listening to them. When they say, I'm gonna, I, I want to have a panic attack, you need to hear that for all that it, that it messages. So why is it so important to listen to and follow up on those emotional cues? Because we're not just trying to collect usage information. We're trying to collect meaning information. And it, it's there. It's there for the picking up. If you ask about what people do, they will also talk to you about what it means. And what it means reveals the biggest barriers or the opportunities. You know, to understand how emotionally fraught this financial transaction is tells you a lot about what role your solution can play in someone's life. And it's not moving data points from A to B. And, you know, anyone that's innovating knows that you're providing higher order benefits. So understanding the meaning and the emotion behind these things, as well as, of course, the facts, the transactions, the data, the you know, the, the workflow and so on. But, you know, where are those points helps you come up with ideas for, well, you know, what role do you want to play? How do you want to, what do you really want to help? And what do you want to tell them that you're going to help with to help them to encourage people to engage with you? Sounds like being a good interviewer is more like improv and less like script reading. Yeah. You know, and I talk about improv uh, a lot, actually. I, have, I teach people about improv from the context of design and interviewing. And um, it was like a really helpful thing for me to learn about it as an interviewer. And when I talk about improv, I always say it has, um, improv is heavily constrained. There's many degrees of constraint and many degrees of freedom. And that's what makes, you know, improv is not just blah, blah, blah. Let's just run around and scream. Like it's highly structured and that's what makes it work. Understanding how to really, really work with those structures and then how to improvise within those. It applies to many different kinds of, problem-solving activities where there's some direction, but some, some amount of, of unknown. And just being able to be comfortable with that. That's why call and response is a good metaphor, because that comes from you know, African drumming. 
which then turned into salsa and all the Cuban and et cetera music and basically African-based music. It is completely constrained improv. And the art of it is about having a wonderful structure, but then improving and vibing off the other people's emotions in real time. I love that. But I love that you connect it to problem solving, not just to doing research, because it's it's also a great metaphor for research. And you're, you know, a master at this, but problem solving in general. And I know that you work with teams on problem solving, not just on research. So that really leads us into the third one that you mentioned earlier, which is to stop fixing. Yeah. And I, and I think there's kind of a micro and a macro aspect to fixing. People talk about this in terms of relationships. Like they'll describe one of their friends or their family members like, oh, he's a fixer. And this, I think, is there's often some gender challenges around this where people in, in a relationship, I guess it's more of a relationship than a gender thing where someone says, oh, this and this happened today. Well, have you tried this? And people don't often feel listened to when they're offered a solution. What they really want to do is talk about the problem. And I think that applies here as well. But let's let's start with a micro, the micro fixing thing. Within the realm of trying to do well in an interview, this is the worst thing that you can do. I think there's, you know, obviously there's terrible things that you can do if you were trying to do a bad interview, but this is the worst well-intentioned thing that you can do, which is when you're looking at a program or a product or a service that you know, whether it's yours or one that you have experience with, is to start telling people how to use it. So people will say things like, you know, I really wish there was a a space in here where we had like help tutorials, or I wish that I could configure this and this thing so that it would be over here. If you say, well, there is, go here and click here and I'll show you how to do that, the interview is over because now you're doing a tech support call. And the dynamic has shifted to that you are the expert and you can help this person fix their problems. And that's what they're going to do. They're going to say, well, and can I do this and can I do that? And as much as you try to get back to what would you want and what would you expect and show me how you do, they figured out who you are. It's really almost impossible to back out of that. The thing to do is wait till you're done. And if they expressed a pain point that you can address, as opposed to the thing you think they should be doing, it's not about your judgment, it's about where they've expressed a need. You can say, oh, by the way, you had mentioned this earlier on, um, would you like me to show you this? And if, they, if that's the case, go ahead. You're done with the interview. There's no harm that can happen. Uh, but to do it in the middle, I think it's the end. And so that's sort of the micro version. The, the macro version is just that whole attitude of, of being a fixer. I've been doing a podcast myself earlier this year with people inside pretty large corporations talking about how they have built up user research practices. It's called Dollars to Donuts, and I'm sure we can put the link to that in, in this as well. And so I was reading over some of the, uh, the interviews that I had done, the transcripts of them. One of the folks from MailChimp talks about the fact that we don't go out and research products, we go and research people. His questions are, what is this person's life like? How do they work? What's important to them? And that's really the fundamental question that uh, it was Greg Bernstein talking about this, the fundamental question that, that he's doing research with. And it's not, what should our product be? How do we make our solution work for them? You know, it goes back to checking your worldview at the door. Part of your worldview is what things you want to make. And just kind of setting that out, setting that aside, um, and really just being interested in the person, and 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 not having a fixing mentality, but just a learning mentality, as you mentioned before. And the reason why that's important is because it lets you, it allows you to 
be exposed to a much broader set of information. And there are opportunities beyond what you had thought about. If you knew everything, you wouldn't need to do this research. So you're trying to set yourself up to be able to be surprised by what you don't know that you don't know. Setting that fixing mentality aside and just being open to learning about the person, not the product, really opens that up for you. Decoupling the problem from the solution. Yeah. There's an undercurrent to everything you're talking about, which is the power dynamics of an interview and what the best practices are. And then when it shifts, and as you say, the interview is now over, you're doing a tech support call. Dig into that a little and give us a framework for thinking about power dynamics in an interview. You know, ideally, if you're coaching someone to say, here's what I want you to do and think about, what can someone who wants to get that right do to increase their chances? Being genuinely interested and curious it's, I think that's sort of a fundamental state. I really want to know about you. So why do you check your worldview at the door? It's, again, to give yourself a break. You know, set aside all the things that you have responsibility for and just be interested in them. I don't know what I'm going to learn. You know, I think other people, I've heard it phrased as thinking about your interview subject as the expert. They're the expert. They're going to explain to you the thing that they do and what works for them and what they get and what they don't get. There's a, there's a podcast I'll recommend if this is a topic of interest to people. Slate put it out. It's the Working Podcast. It's called Working with David Plotz. And he just talked to, I think there's, I want to say 20. He interviewed 20 people of just very different professions. A waiter, a pastor, Stephen Colbert, a musician. Uh, like, you know, exciting and ordinary professions. And he kind of just talked to them about what they do. Uh, it's classic field work. You know, I've never been a soccer mom and I want to learn what it's like to be a soccer mom. That's a terrible example, but it, it's not just professions. It's sort of the circumstance, the thing that that person is that you're there to learn about. And so I think what people often default to do is trying to make the connection and saying like, yes, I have kids. Yes. When I travel, you know, in this part of my life, I think about it this way. And you're trying to build a connection with someone, but that's about you. And actually, if you can take yourself out of it and say like, well, I haven't done this. I am, I am not this. And I am excited to learn from you. Whether you say this literally in words or you just kind of think about it as a framework for yourself, you know, just being enthusiastic and interested in the chance to learn in a deep way about somebody's something that is, that is new to you um, and being excited about that. That's very compelling to people. I was interviewed, someone did some research with me the other day, and it was like, it's going to be the high point of my week, which is not yet over. But they made me feel so good about talking to me. They were, I mean, they were appreciative, which was nice, but they did this. It was, this was cool. I haven't fully reflected on this. They had this technique. We were doing it online. It was a remote interview. And they uh, asked me to tell a story and they pulled all these high points out of the story and they put them on some sh something that we were screen sharing in a hangout and they, they created little cards. And so at the end of the interview, they put this up and I could see all the high points of my story, which I hadn't really synthesized. I was just yammering. There were kind of all these key points. And so, oh my goodness, I felt so good and so respected. Like what I had to say was important to them because they had been listening and they had captured it. There was all laid out there. Like I, I haven't thought of, I haven't talked about this because this just happened, but 
giving that feedback to someone to tell them that you are interested in what they had to say and that it's important. I felt like I had a lot of power in that interview and power is maybe a misleading word because it, it it's about it's not about what I could do to them. It was more about how I was lifted up. They had a lot of power because they were able to create that experience for me where I was very lifted up and I felt very valuable and important and um, you know, and was able to give broadly and freely to inform them. They didn't make themselves the experts and kind of control me. They they kind of created space for this this thing to happen with me. And that was just one of the best experiences I'd had. And I was on the other side of the microphone with it, but it, it inspired me to think about how can I make people feel really good about what they're sharing with me. So that's, that's kind of, you know, I guess I'm taking your power question and kind of blowing it up a little bit, but that's what it's about for me. I think that's so cool. Well, it's a strategy for maximizing learning. Yes. Thank you again, Steve, for joining us. Thanks so much for the great questions and the good conversation. Thanks for listening to Getting to Alpha with Amy Jo Kim, the shows that help you innovate faster and smarter. Be sure to check out our website, gettingtoalpha.com. That's getting2alpha.com for more great resources and podcast episodes.